The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. Before we get into today's episode, Talking Indonesia had the very pleasing news last week that one of our group of hosts, Dr Gemma Purdy, received one of the inaugural Australia-Indonesia Institute Awards for Indonesian Studies and Cultural Leadership. We're certainly very chuffed to see Gemma's work recognised. Apart from Talking Indonesia, amongst other ventures, Gemma is the Festival Director of the Real Oz Ind Film Festival, Chair of the Board behind Inside Indonesia magazine, and a prolific author in the field as well. So I'd certainly invite all of our listeners to join in congratulating her. Now to today's episode, where we'll be discussing Indonesia's response to climate change in the wake of November's COP26 meeting, namely the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Climate Convention in Glasgow. To discuss the targets the Indonesian government has set for itself, how they were formulated, and how the government aims to achieve them, I'm joined today by Dr. Josie Katarina, Senior Researcher at the Indonesian Centre for Environmental Law. From 2010 to 2014, Josie was also a senior legal specialist at the Indonesian Red Plus Task Force and Agency. Red Plus, of course, stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation, as well as Sustainable Management of Forests and the Conservation and Enhancement of Forest Carbon Stocks in Developing Countries. Josie, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, could I start by asking you, what targets has Indonesia set for itself to take action on climate change and how did it formulate those targets? So Indonesia has the 26% target. It, this is an unconditional target and 41% of conditional target, meaning that uh, when we have the international support and the baseline for that is the 2030 business as usual scenario. And FOLU and energy take up 97% of that target. But um, it is not very clear how the target is determined. And particularly Indonesian civil society is concerned because the process to determine the target is not very participatory. Uh, that is one concern. The other concern is also because Indonesia and its updated NDC hasn't really applied the new IPCC methodology, which uh, widely known as the carbon bar- budget. Yeah? So Indonesia still use the AR4, the older version from the IPCC as the methodology, as the basis to count its target. So that target of a 29% reduction in emissions by 2030, has that been a consistent target for Indonesia over time or is that something that's changed quite a bit, say, over the past decade and with the change of presidency back in 2014? So uh, under the SBY administration, we had the 26% target and it is upgraded by the Jokowi presidency by 3%. So it, it becomes 29% in 2030. But the conditional target is still the same. It's 41%. Sure, sure. And how does Indonesia plan to achieve either that 29% reduction or the conditional target of 41%? 
uh, Indonesia has already submitted the long-term strategy for climate change action and cl- climate resilience. The, the focus of the mitigation action would be in forestry and land use change uh, because that would take up like about 70% of the target. And for example, in the forestry sector, Indonesian government recently continued the Pitland Restoration Agency. There was a, a deadline for that uh, agency to work on the rehabilitation plan for the pitland, but Jokowi has lengthened the period of the agency and it also covers more ecosystem which previously was only pitland but now it covers mangrove as well so the rehabilitation target for example set for two million hectares in pitland that is one of the big thing yeah red plus of course or reducing emission from deforestation and forest degradation is still one of the major program by the government the moratorium on forest area was made permanent in 2019, if I remember correctly. So we now have permanent moratorium yeah, in the forest area. In energy sector, Indonesia also has the policy of mixed energy source with the biodiesel policy as uh, one of the main program. Yeah. The government rely on that to make it B30 in 2030. They said in the uh, updated NDC that it is something that is 10 years ahead yeah, of the original target. So this looks good, of course, the idea of mixed energy source. The problem is that the biodiesel relies on the palm oil sector, and that means pressure to the land use and forestry sector. The idea is just only use degraded land, for example, but the fact is forestry sector also heavily burdened by the need to expand the the use of land yeah, to plant uh, the palm oil. Now, you mentioned at the outset that civil society in particular felt they hadn't had much input into these emissions targets. I guess, in what terms is climate change discussed within Indonesia? Is it kind of a technical area of government policy that doesn't attract much public attention or, or is it a big issue of broader public concern? I guess a bit of both, yeah, but particularly in terms of civil society, it's more on the latter because the climate change issue in Indonesia, because as I mentioned earlier, most of the target makes up from forestry and land use sector. And that sector in itself is a sector that's highly contested in the context of the use of that forest and land is very important in Indonesian context. And that is also my area of work. And that is uh, maybe why I understand more about this issue compared to energy, for example. But in terms of forestry and land uh, use sector, climate change currently is one of the source of power in a way yeah, to make sure that the government pays more attention to the governance of it. So the old issues such as the protection of access to the indigenous community land, for example, is still there. Conflicts between community with forestry sector about the use of forestry land is still there. But the government, of course, answered that with social forestry policy, for example, or the agrarian reform policy. But at the factual level, those policies are not progressed fast enough yeah, compared to the demand of the community. So the climate change issue in that area is more like 
the outside of that, yeah. But the structural issues are still the same. So this uh, climate change is used by civil society to strengthen their their position, yeah, to make sure that the good use of forests and land means that a lot of governance aspect needs to be solved yeah, by the government so that the target on forestry and land sector uh, and land use sector can be achieved. In that deforestation sector, you know, obviously back in November, the world was focused on COP26, this 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Climate Convention. And Indonesia's participation in a deforestation pact was one of the issues that attracted a lot of media attention, where Indonesia appeared initially to to sign up to this deforestation pact of, I think, 100 countries. But then uh, shortly afterwards, you had the Environment and Forestry Ministry, Minister Siti Nurbaya criticising the pact on Twitter. Could you delve into a little bit, what was it that Indonesia signed up to there? And does it make any difference to those um, issues around improving forestry governance that you've just gone into? Yeah, so uh, at first when I heard about that, when I read about that, I thought like, oh, maybe the uh, ministry's Twitter was being hacked or something like that because because everyone like, why why did the minister said something like that when talking about Indonesian pledge on deforestation? Yeah? But then we read some more and try to understand the situation more. And it seems like despite all the wording used in that Twitter as well as used by the minister in that occasion. What we try to understand is that the forestry sector is still considered important as a part of the development needs. Yeah. So in one hand, it is just a very bad communication of the Indonesian policy to actually try to improve the situation with the forestry governance. I, as I mentioned earlier, that Indonesian government has the permanent moratorium, uh, that is one thing. But at the same time, recently, we just finished, we also have the moratorium for palm oil uh, licenses. So there are a lot of policies at the national level trying to improve the forestry governance. Yeah. But we assume that because there are several policies that currently also needs the forest, as well as maybe there's this different data set with international NGOs, for example, Greenpeace or WRI, maybe in that context, in the context of deforestation. And the government does not want to be trapped into the narrative that zero deforestation means no deforestation at all. I think the minister just wanted to make sure that message come across, but I think the communication is not very sophisticated in that sense. So it came across differently from what it is intended. Okay. So, I mean, with those competing imperatives between the needs for forestry to contribute to development and the the deforestation and palm oil goals that Indonesia has set itself, I mean, does that mean the the government itself is divided um, between constituencies pushing for those competing imperatives or how does that play out? I would say yes. So, for example, Indonesia government has pushed through with the idea of the need of the new capital. So as you and the audience might aware that the new capital is in the forestry area. In the hinterlands of East Kalimantan, isn't it? 
That's right, in the East Kalimantan, which still has rich forest area. Yeah. So, of course, they try to make sure that they plan at least at the plan stage that it is a quote-unquote green city, so sustainable city, so to speak. But, you know, if that narrative of no deforestation means no deforestation at all, that type of plan cannot go through. That is only one example. The other example would be the recent policy enabled by the omnibus law that use the protected forest for food estate, for example, which also needs forest clearance. That type of policy cannot go through. So those, as, as you correctly mentioned earlier, the competing interests of using the forest area is still there. So they are trying to reach this target. I talk a lot with colleagues from Ministry of Environment and Forestry, and, and I understand from what they are saying that it is not easy to reach that target for the forestry sector. Yeah? They put quite strong tie on themselves on this sector because previously maybe they consider it as easy to reach such target. But as there are other needs of the forest and because Indonesian development is still rely a lot on land and forestry sectors. So this becomes the uh, very difficult target to achieve. Yeah. So, I mean, with all of those competing interests, does signing up to that deforestation pact at COP26 really change anything in real terms in Indonesia's response to climate change? Not really, and not on that context, but after the COP26, the new potential policy is actually in the energy sector. So nothing really new in the forestry sector, but in the energy sector, after the COP26, the Minister of Finance, Rimulyani, mentioned that there is a possibility that Indonesia can retire all the coal-based generator plants, power plant, in 2040, that is like 10 years ahead of the original pledge on 2050. But it's it's not in the any document, any formal document. Yet. It's just something that is mentioned after COP26. So that's the only new thing in terms of target, but nothing formal yet. In the forestry sector, the uh, Minister of Environment and Forestry is still focusing on preparing the implementation for the new presidential regulation on carbon pricing, yeah, which consists of the carbon market. Indonesia will have carbon markets soon. Also, the old uh, result-based payment, as well as the levies on carbon. Yeah, Before the COP, uh, that regulation was passed, as well as uh, a new harmonized tax law on carbon tax. So uh, we have like quite plenty of economic instruments yeah, to support the Indonesian target on climate change mitigation. I mean, what sort of price is Indonesia placing on carbon and, and how does that compare internationally? So this is something interesting because in the harmonized tax law in 2021, passed last July, it was mentioned there that the carbon tax would be like some sort of penalty. So it will first apply it in the energy sector. So if the cap is the allowance that will be given to businesses, and if this allowance cannot be fulfilled by their own effort, then they could first try to fulfill that through the market, which will be set up very soon. But if they still cannot fulfill that allowance, or reach uh, the cap, then they will be able to pay tax. So the tax itself, it's set in the law that it follows the price in the carbon market, but then as a, in a way of a floor price, it mentioned about three Australian dollar per uh, ton. So it's in that sense, it's very low, yeah. 
but if we put that together with the other condition that it needs to be in the same with the market price, it, it is okay. Because usually the floor price is connected to the abatement cost. That's what we understand, but it is not, and we are not really sure what's the reasons. What is mentioned by the Minister of Finance officials in several occasions, including the minister herself, is that this original price is only to send signal to the market. So just to make sure that everyone aware that now we put a price on the carbon emissions and to prepare everyone, prepare the infrastructure, things like that. Because it is correct in a way because the law itself allows or make sure that the price could be revisited, yeah, based on the carbon trading roadmap as well as a carbon tax roadmap. So they will have these two roadmaps. It's, it's already set in the law and the price would be adjusted to that roadmap in the future. So I kind of hopeful as well that it will be the case here, that we put the correct price for the emissions that we emitted. Now, I mean, still in the, I guess, broadly in the area of deforestation, even before COP26 this year, we saw Indonesia terminating a Red Plus agreement that it had signed with Norway some years ago. I guess what accounts for Indonesia's decision to terminate that agreement and and what are your views of that decision? Of course, I'm not the Ministry of Environment and Forestry, so I wouldn't know the exact reason for this. But from the outside, there are several possibilities. One of the strongest one would be that Norway might postpone the payment because they considered that the new Indonesian agency, the Indonesian Environment Agency, or known as BPDLH in Bahasa Indonesia, yeah, this new agency is established to manage environmental fund, including funding in the climate change area. Yeah. So the fund by Norway, as well as before Norway, there is also payment from the GCF, uh, 103.8 million US dollar, and it will be managed by this agency. Yeah. So from what I understand, one of the possibilities is that Norway consider that DIF is not ready yet. Uh, maybe they use for example, World Bank or, or UNDP as the benchmark of an institution that would have a very strong governance and capacity to manage such fund. Of course, this new institution wouldn't be up to that level. So if that is the reason, my take on this would be, I think it is not fair to put that burden uh, onto a new institution because if I compare that with the approach of GCF, for example. GCF is the, sorry, the... Uh, the Green Climate Fund. You know, the fund also set up uh, under the UNFCCC umbrella, if I may say. So this is the fund by uh, various countries here. Yeah. Norway is actually one of the major contributors to the GCF. They have the piloting for uh, result-based payment on RAP Plus, and they, they pay Indonesia... 103.8 million US dollar yeah, for Indonesian past performance. So in this context, when the same governance is applied, meaning the IEF, the Indonesian Environment Fund, is also the one who managed the fund, and they fully aware that this is a new institution, what they did was to, and still do actually, uh, is um, supporting this newly established institution to make sure that they have the needed capacity yeah. And even one of the programs by the GCF, I'm better aware of this program because I once involved in the setup of it. 
So one of the outputs was to actually making sure that DIF could be GCF accredited entity in the future. So I think in terms of common but differentiated responsibility principle, things like that, I think it is a much better approach. Yeah. And I'm not really sure whether that is actually the reasons from Norway or there are others because we understand that this uh, negotiation process has taken uh, quite a long time yeah, between Indonesian government and the Norway government. And it's been escalated many times to the higher level. So maybe that's not the only reasons. There are others, which I'm not really sure. But I mean, this issue of international finance for climate change action does seem to be an important one to Indonesia. I mean, we saw at COP26, Indonesia being part of a group of like-minded developing countries who called for developed countries to mobilise $1.3 trillion per year to combat climate change. How much international finance does Indonesia need or seek for its response to climate change and is this becoming a major issue for Indonesia in its relations with various countries? I think in, in terms of how much the government needed, they needed a lot of other uh, source of fund. And in the long-term strategy in document, it is mentioned, if I remember the number correctly, that the Indonesian government only, the budget could only cover around 30% of the climate finance needed. So... The Indonesian government has, as I mentioned earlier, has uh, put forward this uh, new carbon pricing policy in place, the introdu introduction of the carbon tax. They also introduced this newly established institution, the Indonesian Environment Fund, as one of the uh, main infrastructures. They also put forward the green bonds uh, launched by the government. And these are the way to support the financial needs of the climate change mitigation. It all looks good on the outside, but of course, a lot of effort is needed to make sure that it's actually used effectively and efficiently to reach the target itself. And the only, not maybe the only, I'm not really an expert of climate finance, but it seems like at least from my understanding of one of the main infrastructure that needed is, for example, yeah, when we talk about the carbon market, carbon market relies on the allowance or the cap, yeah? and how to make sure that these caps is actually being adhered to at the factual level is something that might miss in the existing government infrastructure. Yeah? So all the other policies that I mentioned is quite advanced, but how to make sure that, that the businesses are actually monitored and measure the emission that they emitted correctly. We need in place, for example, the monitoring system, a very reliable monitoring system. That is something that I understand is missing. And I can say that with confidence, yeah. So this is something that the government needs to focus on at the moment because we've been missing that for quite a long time, yeah. The environmental law, for example, introduced what we know as the monitoring officer, or we call that as pejabat pengawas lingkungan hidup, yeah? so environmental monitoring officer. And a lot of regions do not have one. So I'm not really sure how that will work yeah, in the technical level. Because, for example, in forestry area, there is a new technology that allows for monitoring is being conducted 
you know, through the satellite. So the satellite can now monitor which area has experienced deforestation, for example, things like that. So it's the technology relatively make that possible. But in terms of monitoring actual emission, uh, I don't know whether it is possible without the existence of these monitoring officers, for example, to, to do the cross-checking. Yeah. So this is the, the kind of things that is very important for the government to work on. I mean, that's a really interesting point around the infrastructure for monitoring um, these legal frameworks, because, I mean, that's something you've written about in your previous research on palm oil licenses, where, you know, despite the fact that Indonesia has introduced all manner of criminal sanctions around, I guess, illicit palm oil licenses, um, you've written that the drafting of the laws means much of the, I guess, the actions of illicit actors fall outside of those offences, and also institutions lack the capacity to enforce even those actions that are captured by offences. I mean, how systematic is this across Indonesia's response to climate change? You've mentioned many frameworks that Indonesia has introduced. Are they drafted in a way that Indonesian institutions have the capacity to actually implement that climate change framework? The gap between law and implementation is not something new in an Indonesian context. So I'll, I'll take, for example, the new law, yeah? some would say a draconian law, the omnibus law, which I, I wouldn't discuss the new constitutional court decisions yeah, that made this law unconstitutional for the next two years. I wouldn't discuss on that, but I will discuss on the approach that, that the new law takes. Yeah? This new law rely not on command and control, it says, not really on the criminal sanctions, for example. It rely more on the monitoring of the certain standards. Yeah, In the previous law, we had a very strong uh, environmental licenses instrument, for example, uh, which has severe legal consequences if it is not being adhered to. So... The new law is different. It says that now if you want to relax the investment atmosphere so that it's easier to do businesses in Indonesia. So that's basically it. And it relies a lot on the monitoring system. So it put it there. But we know that Indonesian government is very weak yeah, in doing monitoring. Uh, one of the very clear examples is, as I mentioned earlier, the absence of monitoring officers the PPLH, they are absent in many districts level, while the one that has the power yeah, to issue business licenses and as which environmental aspects become part of that conditions, they are not in place. So it is relatively very difficult for the district government to enforce the, the law. Yeah. We did uh, research in 12 districts in Indonesia recently under the USAID SEGAR project, and that's one of the main findings that we got yeah, in the 12 rich forestry district, yeah, district with a lot of forests. So first, they don't have it. The second one is that they don't really have the uh, system in place in making sure a good communication between different units in the same level of government as well as to vertical level of government. Yeah. We have a system called LAPOR, originally established by the presidential office. Yeah, LAPOR means report in Indonesian. So uh, this system encourages people to report to this system, but it is not connected with local governments. Yeah. 
so it's relatively messy system. The law seems not to recognize this when they put this new approach in place. But as I mentioned earlier, it is not something new in Indonesian context. At least from my area of work in the last 20 years, it's almost like a, a constant thing to do. Yeah, It's a good thing in a way, at least from uh, one point of view, because this I, I don't talk about the omnibus law. I talk, for example, for other law such as the 2009 environmental law or other law that when they are being idealistic like that, it's much easier to, in terms of when I put my legal hat, it is much easier to make sure that there is some sort of standard that we could ask the government to comply to. The good thing at the moment is that we have a relatively good judiciary yeah? in the sense of that we have a green benches. So we learn from Australia, for example, the New South Wales has the Land Environment Court. So we learn from that and we introduce that in Indonesian context as green benches. So judges are being certified as judges to work on natural resources law and environmental law. And that will help us, us in, in terms of civil society, yeah? If we want to, to, to try to enforce that good law, yeah? because Indonesian uh, law has acknowledged, for example, citizen lawsuits. We acknowledge the NGO standing in the court. We acknowledge the transparency policy. The access to information law is quite good. And even the, the recent constitutional court decision that mentioned that the new omnibus law should be treated as inconstitutional, one of the main reasons is because public participation was not being adequately respected in the process of the lawmaking. So I'm hopeful of these patches of good governance. Yeah? Uh, we have a green benches, we have quite good law, several good laws. Yeah? And we have a relatively strong civil society which could link the two yeah, uh, through court cases. So it's, it is something that... Uh, I'm looking forward to, and it is something that Indonesian Center for Environmental Law Organization is is trying to to work on, Dave. Yeah, sure, sure. And perhaps uh, in closing, overall, I mean, how optimistic are you that Indonesia can achieve the sorts of emissions targets that it set for itself? And I guess that those targets will be sufficient to combat climate change in the country. On paper, I think. The government would be able to, you know, because there's this technicalities in reporting the target itself and whether the target is actually ambitious enough or not. It's something that is beyond my capacity to answer, but I believe that the Indonesian government would be able to report back yeah, that they achieved target in 2030. Because for forestry sector, for example, for now, as I mentioned, maybe because the target the, the forestry sector target is quite ambitious and they already started working on that in the last 10 years. Uh, but the energy sector is not very strong. Uh, it's not very ambitious. But okay, apart from that, I think like if the government wanted to make sure that it's success in achieving the target and even more actually what we wanted to hear is a more ambitious target yeah, from the government, they need to transform the governance itself because in the forestry sector, for example, the problems with the conflicts of land ownership is still a big, big thing in Indonesia. And there is, we, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that social forestry and the land reform policies are two main policies to resolve this issue. 
but it doesn't implement it well enough. So the government needs to pay more attention on these two policies, yeah, on making sure that we have better acknowledgement and better fairness in the access to forestry area. And with that, because basically, usually, for example, deforestation or forest fires usually happen in the conflicting areas. So that's why it is very important to, if we want to achieve that target in the forestry sector, we need to solve this issue. So that is one thing. The other thing is about the monitoring, as I mentioned earlier, that is very, very weak still. And also that with the omnibus law, which we will see what will happen in two years' time, yeah, because the constitutional court giving the government two years to work better on that, to improve the process of the lawmaking in the uh, next two years. So we'll see what happens. But with the current omnibus law, the environmental safeguards uh, becomes very weak. So at least with these three policies to very weak policies, I think the government would be very difficult to achieve its target. But changing these three things of monitoring, of environment and safeguards, as well as to solve conflicts, needs not only a change in the law, but also the political aspects, because this seems like, you know, like the politics is not very supportive on these three issues. Yeah. The main talks right now about climate change is more on the financial aspects of it, how that these new climate solutions open up opportunities for new types of investment, things like that. But this investment wouldn't work very well if, you know, if we still have that problem of conflicts, if we still have that problems with monitoring, because what could government do or make sure that this investment works toward its goal? without this very important infrastructure of being able to monitor their performance. Yeah? So with those in mind, what I wanted to say is that to achieve a quality target, a lot of homeworks need to be done, yeah? needs to be solved. Sure, sure. Now, Josie, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dave. <laughs> That was Dr. Josie Katarina, Senior Researcher at the Indonesian Centre for Environmental Law and previously a Senior Legal Specialist at the Indonesian Red Plus Task Force, an agency. Talking Indonesia will be back next week with a Policy and Focus episode on 16 December, then we'll be taking our annual holiday season break until January. In the meantime, as always, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia archive for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.